Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. We're going to get right to the show after these messages. This is E.J. Findorf, author of Blood Parish, and you're listening to the Mysterious Goings On. Time listeners to the show know that occasionally I pick up my pen and I write mystery thrillers and you know we'll talk about me some other time because this is not about me but what we are talking about today is something we never talk about on this show uh, in fact um, I was notified of this basically by a, a listener and somebody who does some from her own podcasting and has extensive uh, work in writing editing she said you know I don't see you talking a whole lot about this interesting topic of uh, urban uh urban fantasy. And I think that today we're going to talk about it and explain what it is, find out if any of you listeners out there read it or write it, and more as we welcome Caitlin Burvey to the show. Caitlin is somebody who's got her feet in a couple of different uh, uh, squares on the on the chessboard. She's doing all sorts of things from writing herself. She's got her own book. She's edited. She works with writers. She talks about writing, she supports writers, she's on the board for uh, local writers groups and more, and I'm just really excited to speak with Caitlin uh, to get her take not only on urban fantasy, but also just the general state of writing and any advice she may have for fellow writers, and of course, any tips and uh, good suggestions for our listeners out there who are readers. Caitlin Burby, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. So yeah, it's, I get this email and it's like, you know, I don't see you talking about uh, about uh, urban uh, uh, very much. And I'm like, you know, I don't. Um, so it, it might be helpful if you would tell us what this is, first of all. Yes. So urban fantasy traditionally is a fantasy story that's set in our modern times, generally in an urban city environment. Recently, it's been expanded a little bit, so it's no longer just urban environments. It's basically any fantasy in our contemporary world. So in publishing houses, you might hear it called contemporary fantasy, but readers don't know that term. So okay. I stick with urban fantasy. <laughs> what was that show um, on NBC a few years ago? It was the fairy tales and shoot. Do you know what uh, I'm talking about? Once Upon a Time, there was no, also was... Grimm. Grim. Um, yeah. <laughs> Would that qualify? Because I remember that I thought that show was in its own way very delightful, even with the weird CGI. It would definitely. That's like <laughs> your right on the mark urban fantasy. Oh man. Okay. Um, so is tell me is is that is it something that you think is it's a growing um, a sub, is it a subgenre or genre to its own? And that's the first part. And secondly, is it a growing one or is it is it stable or is it kind of dipping right now in popularity? What do you know about that? Urban fantasy sprung up not that long ago. If you have ever read Harry Dresden Files um, by Jim Butcher, mm. that kind of started the urban fantasy genre itself. And since then, it's only really grown. It goes through phases where it's a little bit more popular or less popular, but really it's here to stay. It's kind of become a staple in the fantasy realm. So is this... Uh... 
so it, it, it does require a fantastical element to it. It's contemporary, but it has to have some kind of fantasy involvement, right? Yes. Okay. Usually uh, it's some sort of creature. So vampires, werewolves, the fae, it'll pull those into our modern society. Also, usually they are not integrated in society. People aren't aware of them. So they're existing beside us, but we don't know. And then our main characters kind of fall into that world. So would Interview with a Vampire have qualified for this all those years ago? You know, if it was written today, it would probably be considered yeah. somewhere in the realm of urban fantasy. Yeah, because that was the whole idea that, that they've been with us forever and most people didn't know it. And, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. Anne Rice, she, she was ahead of her time in that regard. Um, are there uh, are, are you working now? I, I guess I should stick, take a step back. We jumped right <laughs> into the, the juicy stuff here. But you 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 started Ignited Ink Writing. And uh, tell us about that and uh, what, what what's involved with that? What are you doing there? So that's my kind of catch-all writing company. I edit through there. So I edit other people's books. I like to tell people I focus on story-based writing because I'll do some memoir type nonfiction, oh. but I don't really do business books or self-help very much, you know? Boring. So I stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely stick to story-based and I do most genres. Uh, there are certain things that I don't touch, but that's usually because there's like graphic rape scenes or something. And I'm oh. just, I'm not a fan of reading that. So I don't work with those so much, but I do a lot of fantasy. I do mysteries and thrillers like you write. Uh, my current project is historical fiction. So, and then I also publish through there and do a little bit of technical writing through there. Now, uh, are you, would you consider yourself more a developmental editor or do you develop, do developmental and or copywriting? I do both. So I do developmental and line editing, copy editing. I do a little bit of proofreading, but I definitely tend more towards the developmental side. Yeah. You're basically looking to see, does this make sense? Is this, is there, are there good story beats here? I mean, you're, you're kind of having to, not having to, but your, your mission is to, if I'm working with you, it's like, Alex, this is great, but your pacing's off. Or did you, did you forget that the butler shot somebody in chapter two and it's not even in the rest of the book you're doing that kind of stuff right i am and i'm also doing the conversation with the writer where they tell me a whole bunch of stuff and i'm like well that's great but that's not in here <laughs> so let's figure out how to put that in here <laughs> that's great but that's not in here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah my editor he's he's pretty good at that he, i don't know i've known him forever i've known him 35 years but he uh He's, he's, he doesn't pull any punches. He's, he's a sweetheart, but he doesn't pull any punches. And that's good. That's what you need. You're, you know, it's important. Um, we writers often tend to be a little, uh, probably a little indulgent too. Um, although I did tell him this, I'm on my eighth book in my series, which may very well be my last. And I just said, look, there's a lot of indulgence in this one. And I, I, I'm sorry, but this one's for the fans. So you can come at me about some of this stuff, but I ain't changing most of it. And he's just like, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> So, but with Ignited, so, so how, uh, but you, you, you don't just do that. Um, that's your business and that's your, your bread and butter. But I mean, you're, you're, you're with the Boulder Writers Alliance, mm -hmm. the Colorado Independent Publishers Association. You're a very active member of the, the 30th Street Fiction Writers Critique Group. I mean, pardon me for saying it, but you, you eat, drink and sleep writing, don't you? I do. Yes. And that's a hard thing whenever I go out to lunch with my friends because they're all writers. So they want to ask me about that. And I'm like, can we talk about something else maybe? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like being a, a lawyer. I have a lawyer friend, and I'm I find myself going. So listen, if this parking ticket, and he kind of gives me a look like really. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I get. The, you know what's interesting about you? I was doing a little little looking around. So you come from a, a family that is very steeped in the medical profession, and you even you even kind of went that direction initially. Do you mind telling us about that? Yeah, I grew up wanting to be a doctor or a vet. I leaned more toward doctor once I realized they make more money. (laughs) And I liked that science a little bit more. So I majored in biochemistry, took the MCATs, was on the waiting list for medical school, was working as a clinical allergy specialist. And then I didn't get in and I was relieved instead of disappointed. Yeah. So during that time, I had taken creative writing classes instead of regular English classes for my degree. I'd written my first book and I was like, this is more fun. This is what I want to do. So I switched. Yeah, well, particularly in the time we live in now, it it could be a very portentous decision in a lot of ways, right? Yes. And I noticed early on when I was volunteering and working in medicine that you spend a lot more time doing paperwork than you do actually with patients. And that always bothered me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't think people, I don't think I realize, I, sh- I think I did realize, I've forgotten though, just what a, uh, how lucky I am that I have a g- general practitioner physician who, when I go in for a checkup, he takes like a full 20 minutes with me, just talks and asks me questions, which, you know, not everybody has that. Most people I don't think do. So I, I it's, it's our loss, the medical world lost out when they had someone like you who really cares about that kind of patient interaction, which is so important. But, but here we are in the publishing world, we gained you. So that's a good thing there. Uh, so tell me a little bit, though. Um, you, you, actually, um, you actually have a creative writing degree, right? That's I do. Said, right? So I got my master's in creative writing after I figured out that's what I wanted. <laughs> so you've had a lot of schooling, as they say. Um, But you also teach, right? You teach writing? I do. I teach community classes. I don't teach at a college or anything like that. And I like that better. They're shorter. I can focus on one aspect of writing. And it's people who really want to be there. Yeah, you don't have like a freshman or a sophomore who's hung over from, yeah, and okay, I guess, yes. yeah, who just wants to be a marketing guy or something. Mm-hmm. Terrible people. Uh, I'm kidding. I do marketing <laughs> PR by day. Um, so I... Uh, I want to ask you about that. Uh, this is something I love to ask people who teach writing. I've got a good friend who does that locally, but I've written my, well, a long time, but I've had a writing, professional writing careers and I get paid for what I do for about 20 years. But I've been asked to kind of guest lecture here and there and talk. And I don't know the first thing, how you teach anything about writing to people. It, it, I, I don't know how I do it myself, Caitlin. So how do you, can you give us a little insight on how you arrive at teaching? Yes. So the first thing that I really did actually was I started blogging about writing on my business website, and that helped me figure out what areas I feel like I am more of an expert in or that I understand well enough to teach people. And then it helped me figure out from my email list and my comments what people struggle with in writing. So I designed my programs around that, and I found certain areas are you just need to remind writers of things more so than teach them. Hmm. So settings is one where I'm like, Hey, this should be more than a backdrop. It's not just the stage for your story. This should be influencing your plot or your characters. It can reveal things about them. It can establish the emotion of the scene. You can do so many things with your setting just in the way that you describe it. 
that can help all the other aspects of your story. So I remind people, let's do more with our setting than just describe. How much of it too is, uh, here, I, I did this as a noob on my first, well, my first book that came out, not the first two or three books that are sitting in a drawer, rightfully so, uh, moldering mm -hmm. away from uh, any kind of human contact. But but uh, I started the book and I, I it's still that way. I started the book with a guy who got up in the morning and was going through some very anodyne got up in the morning stuff, which is, it's, it's really kind of cliched, but I, I just got to a point where I just thought, nah. I still think this is important that he does all these anodyne things because on page five, he's going to do something incredibly dis destructive and nasty. So I just, I left it in, but how much of that is critiquing and saying, look, you know, this is, I understand this, this uh, angle, but you know, do how often, I guess what I'm trying to say, Caitlin is how often do you have to remind people that that's great, but it's maybe not terribly original or it's very tropey and, and how do you go about it? When it comes to those things, first, if it's a beginning, I always tell people nine times out of 10, you start in the wrong place, but that's okay because you have to start writing somewhere. Mm -hmm. You have to get those things out of your head so that you know them and they're down on paper for you. When we go back and revise, then we're going to look at where's the best place to start. Often we're going to flip chapters one and two. I like to tell people what those wake up in the morning things as a reader i don't care enough about your character yet to want to know that uh -huh. Very so good. if you flip to chapter two first where the excitement happens well now i'm in i'm like there are things happening i want to know more about this character now hmm. then i want that what's their morning like what about flashback kind of stuff and, and moving temporally moving things around throughout a book with flashbacks i always one, again, ask, are you starting in the right place? If mm. you have a lot of flashbacks and they're roughly to the same time, maybe you just need to start there. And then also we need to look at, does my reader need to know this to understand what's happening in the story? Ah. And if they don't, then we probably need to cut it. But if they do, then we just need to find a good place for it. Why is my character remembering this now? Okay. Is there... Uh, uh, is there, in your opinion, is there a level of difficulty that goes from writing something, a novel completely in first person as opposed to third person? Is there, is there a level of difficulty that you would say to maybe a new writer about attempting that? It kind of depends on the person, um, on the writer. If you're a writer who sees the character first and they're fully formed in your head, you might gravitate more towards first person because it's all of that character's voice. If you're a writer who sees the plot first, you might gravitate more towards third person because hmm. you haven't figured out that character voice yet. So it kind of depends on your inspiration, hmm. I think. But we can always learn either one. Well, I mean, I actually wrote a, a book all from first person and it didn't work. And then I got some advice. That, Why don't you take it out of this, the, the eyes of just this one character? And, and it worked a lot better. It just took me forever to write it. I actually advise people that in my writing classes, when you're drafting, pause somewhere in the middle and check your point of view. Because uh, if you have to change that, that's a rewrite, right? That's not revision at that point. Right. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point. And I, by the way, I respect your take on, on like certain things you won't, won't do. Um, yeah, there's certain things I won't write. And I, I, I got kind of checked by that by a writer friend. He says, you know, you can't censor yourself. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to have graphic depictions of rape. Or I, I also, my big thing too is children. I can't bear to read things where children are uh, 
tortured or, or abused. I just can't. Yes. And, and if that puts a big hole in my ability as a writer, well, so be it. Yeah, I, I don't do much. Well, that really hasn't come across my desk ever. Um, the children, I've seen it, you know, in media and stuff, but I've never had an author bring it to me. The one that I do have to touch on when I work with mystery thriller writers is pets. You know, it's a trope to kill the pet, right? To show how serious the bad person is. Well, like John Wick, right? <laughs> yeah. And I always remind them that modern readers will come after you for that. They don't like it when the pet dies. <laughs> I think I read Stephen King, like in the beginning of my favorite book by him, uh, The Dead Zone, the, the the character was played by Martin Sheen, the movie, for want of a better term, the, the bad guy. The beginning of the book, he kicks a dog to death. He's a traveling salesman. And he's, and he, I remember he wrote, he said, I got more letters about this dog yep. than, than anything else. And he was just like, people, it's, I'm trying to illustrate this is a bad man. But you make a great point because he could never get past that with so many readers who just said, I will not read about somebody kicking a dog to death. Which is, yeah. So I, I think you make a great point there, Caitlin. What uh, what are you, if you don't mind, and of course you, I'm not asking you to to name names or anything, but uh, what what are you getting um, when people want to work with you? What what types of stuff are you getting the most of these days? What genres are, are just coming across? Whether you say yes or no, I'm just curious about who who's coming at you right now. I get a lot of thrillers uh, lately. Historical fiction, but that's kind of an odd one for me. I think it just fell that way. And then because I live in Boulder, Colorado, I get a lot of the spiritual. So mm. it's not Christian, it's more Buddhist leaning or something along those lines, but it doesn't really fit any religion. And so it tends to have some mystical elements to it, almost like fantasy, but not quite. I get that a lot um, recently. And for me, it seems to just kind of come in waves. I don't mm. think it necessarily reflects the trends in publishing. It's just, I'm one person, you know, there's right. always patterns. So. Yeah. I was just curious about that. You know, back, I did a little bit of this for a little while. I had an author services firm for a little while and, uh, it, you know, within it for a few years. And I realized it just, it, it wasn't for me in a lot of levels, but uh, not because there's anything wrong with it. Just, I wasn't as great at it as I could be at other things. But uh, I remember getting a particularly hefty tome from a, a writer and it was a lot of fantasy. It was kind of a young YA story and it was fine and it did well. Um, but ah, I don't read that, don't enjoy mm -hmm. that. And it was kind of not Harry Potter, but eh, good in there. And I, I just had, a, I, I found, this is terrible to admit, I found myself kind of just pushing it away and not, not keeping up with it like I should have as a client. Um, but I, I wonder, is, is that ever a problem for you when you accept something? And I guess you don't want to admit to that if you do, but I'll ask anyway, where you're kind of like, oh yeah, I got, I've got to grit my teeth and get through this one. I, I won't take that if it's a developmental edit. So I always tell people I can copy edit anything, right? Sure. Because right. that's just the mechanics that is, does this make sense? That is, is this consistent? I can do that for anything, even if I'm bored which doesn't really happen very often, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to be a little bit passionate at least if I'm going to do the developmental edit where I'm really helping you develop the story. So I won't take a project for that if I don't feel something for it. And then I really won't do any writing coaching for anyone if I don't feel passionate about their project or if we don't click. I don't right. do that very often. It's not really my favorite part. I like working with an already finished book more than, Hey, let's get you writing. Oh yeah. But if they have a great idea and we 
click, you know, we just have good interpersonal chemistry, then I'll do a little bit of that too. Speaking of that though, interpersonal chemistry, do you, do you need to work with people and meet them in person? Is that the best way to do this? Or do you work with people from all over? I work with people from all over. I do a lot of phone calls and Zooms though. So my farthest clients are in Australia. <laughs> and that one's a little tricky because, you know, complete other side of the world, very different times. So getting on Zoom with them can be a little hard. But yeah, yeah I always, I want to have a conversation with you before I start so I can okay. figure out your goals, your audience, your expectations. Sometimes I'll have someone say, oh, this is a YA book. And I'm like, they're 22. <laughs> is this a YA book or is this an adult book? What do you want it to be? Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing that I, there was a, I've got this eight book series and uh, midway through my editor was, uh, or let's just say incapacitated and couldn't handle it, a couple of the books. And I, I had a great uh, editor pinch hit for me, but uh, I think we lost a little bit with continuity uh, checking mm -hmm. from that. They'd read all the others, but you know, it's, it's different to be the editor of an author's book than a reader and then coming into edit, I think. Any thoughts on that? It is. If you're an editor and not just a reader, you need to know more about the book than a reader does. You're also paying attention in a different way right. than a reader is. And I switch off my brain, my editing brain, whenever I read a physical copy of a book. Really? So that's why I prefer paperback instead of e-readers is I've trained myself. If I'm reading a paperback, I don't have to edit. So if I just read your books that way, I wasn't paying the same attention. Interesting. I love that. Okay. That's a great point. Okay, well, let's, let's shift gears here a little bit though. Um, I, we kind of, I want to lay out a predicate for who you are and what you're interested in and talk about, uh, you know, uh, the urban fantasy a little bit, but um, you are a bit of an expert on fairy tales and the dark history of fairy tales and why they're still so prevalent in our society. And in fact, you're, you're so into it. You, it's, it's heavily influenced your book, which is called When Magic Calls, a collection of modern fairy tales. Tell us about that. Yes. So I love the way fairy tales evolve and change with society. And I love how they got started. So when I talk about fairy tales, we're not talking about Disney, right? We're talking right. Grimm Brothers sort of fairy tales. Right. In my book, I wanted to reimagine some of those classic stories and see what would happen if they took place now. What would they look like? How would they be different? Who would these characters be? And so it's it's urban fantasy, but it has that fairy tale element to it as well. And it I like to say it has the darker side of magic as well as some of the happier ones. What do you tell Disneyfied uh, Disneyfied uh, public about about the uh, actual origins of these fairy tales? I mean, if you take everything Disney's done with the fairy now, they're perfectly enjoyable. My daughter loved them, and I, I enjoyed them too. But but you get down to the the, the Grimm brothers the these are very, very dark. I mean, you got a, do you have a good example of what, I mean, uh, Hansel and Regretel and, and Regretel, Hansel and Gretel, or, or, or are there, are there one that's, that people don't really fully understand if they haven't read that? Uh, I'll start with my least favorite is the Sleeping Beauty. The uh -huh. original fairy tale of that one, she is, depending on the version, version you read, it's either <clears throat> raped by her father or the prince while she's Ooh. still asleep. Ooh. gives birth to twins while she's still asleep 
And one of them suckles at her finger and pulls out the splinter. And that's how she wakes up. And that's, I don't like that version. I much prefer the Disney version. Um, (laughs) Wow. Okay. I I didn't know that one. Yeah. So some of them get really dark, really bad. But we have to remember too, is the original fairy tales were not meant for children. Most of them. So this was back before TV when people did tedious jobs. And so you would get groups of women, groups of workers together, and one of them would tell stories. And that's where a lot of these fairy tales come from. That's what they were meant for. Also, they were secret messages or warnings. My favorite example of that one is Bluebeard. That's the story of a woman who marries a rich guy. He goes to his castle. He tells her, here's all the keys, but don't go in this room. You have the key to the room, right? But don't go in it. He leaves for weeks. And of course you go in the room, right? Everyone goes in the room. And then he comes back and threatens to kill her. And she finds out that he killed all of his other wives for going into this room. And in the certain version, version, she is saved by her brothers or someone. That is actually a warning about a Lord who was a Satanist and a serial killer. And the people of the land could not say anything bad against him or they would be executed essentially. So instead they created this story to tell each other to say, Hey, he's killing people. Watch out. He was more sacrificing children, but in the fairy tale, it was wives to keep it different. And so they wouldn't get in trouble, but that's where that fairy tale comes from. Okay. Listeners, you can't see my face, but Caitlin can, I, my jaw is <laughs> hanging open. Cause here I'm all Mr. Smart guy thinking I've heard these and I, well, <laughs> That is, I mean, I, and the words are failing me. That was so dark. That dark doesn't even begin to cover that. Mm-hmm. That is horrific. All of it. Uh, I, tell me, am I right about, um, oh, uh, uh, oh my gosh, the glass slipper. I mean, who am I missing? Cinderella. Here? Cinderella. Now, didn't, okay, tell me if this is true or apocryphal or I just made this up. Uh, didn't the sisters trying to fit into the slipper and the original story, like hack away their heel to make it, am I wrong about that? They did, yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> so yeah. so they're trying to fit into the shoe, and they literally cut their 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 feet up to try to fit, right? Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Oh man, yeah. Why? You know, Disney had their work cut out for them. Um, so what? What? So I, if, if I'm hearing correctly, though, the reason why these story put Disney aside, but the, these stories still resonate. Uh, because they do seem to get to something kind of primal about humans, I think. Wouldn't you agree? Or is there is there something else besides that? They do. And the thing about fairy tales is they always had a lesson or a message, right? And if you look at the modern versions, they've twisted that a little bit to fit modern society mm-hmm. in some way. So all of the different Cinderella versions, if you look at the progression, she's starting to save herself now, right? Kind of yes. reflects feminism and... Right women seen more as equals. So the nice thing about those tales is they're generic enough to be able to do that with. Hmm. You can reimagine them. You can make them fit your own narrative. Yeah. I mean, the, in Disney, even like brave, they, I don't know if that was, I don't think that was based on a fairy tale. Was it? I think it was just something they concocted to be a little more. Yeah. I don't think it was that I know of either. Uh, there are fairy tales where people get turned into animals but I'm not aware of if that's based on an exact one or just that idea. Right. Personally, I'm more of a Shrek fan, but, uh, you know, 
Hey, that's still a good one. Yeah. Oh man. Um, d- definitely. Uh, so, uh, when you're talking about, um, we talked about that show Grimm and we're talking about urban fantasy, what comes along with this. And I could see of course, why this is all in your, your bailiwick and why you enjoy it so much. But, uh, so if I was, if I were to go in that direction, and let me ask you this: Do you do you see this a lot? Since you know a lot about it, do do a lot of people hark back to these known uh, creatures, known fables, known legends, or are you seeing people like kind of modern day creating something different, like Slender Man or something like that? I see both. The nice thing about using the ones that are well known is it's almost like shorthand for writing. I can say werewolf, and I don't have to describe anything yeah right that's true so you might invent some that are your own creation but usually you'll have some that are well known so that you don't have to fully flesh out everything right and then also everybody does their own take on them so mm-hmm. they don't just straight pluck them and use them in the classic way twilight's the best example of you know vampires taking almost as far away from vampires as you can go and still call them that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. Well, uh, some of my, let's here, I can go through a few of my favorites to, to see what you think. Yes. Uh, for, favorite, one of my favorite films, I'm an old guy, but this when I was in high school, saw it at the drive-in, stopped there with that, but uh, saw a uh, fright night and the, the, uh, the vampire ate apples, which blew my mind. You know, he was kind of, you know, if I look back now, he's kind of an eighties, playboy lounge lizard type but he ate apples it was so different right um mm-hmm. that was their spin because and i think it might even be something the actor had come up with uh, chris sarandon as, as a way to kind of give him a different spin but so I, it, when you're talking about that i see that and i think of, there was caitlin there was another forgive me i don't remember it but there was this is the part of the, it was a vampire movie but their explanation as to why uh vampires don't like silver and crosses and things like that uh or but silver was the thing they're saying well werewolves die by silver but the, the vampires didn't because apparently silver goes back to judas and the 30 pieces of silver and the betrayal of christ and that was i thought that was incredibly clever yeah it it is clever when they pull in the religious connotations i think yeah yeah because yeah. you're, you're building this whole world um but there's just there's so many there are so many things you can do and so much fun you can have with this. And let me ask you this though: Are there some that are a little more like grim that have a lot of serious stuff, but there's they're very playful as well? There are. You can kind of create whatever tone you want. When it was first created, it was a little bit grittier, a little bit darker. A lot of them too. And the reason I thought urban fantasy would be good for your podcast is their detective stories. Yeah. It's that gritty side of detective stories. It just so happens that they're dealing with magical creatures instead of regular people. You got my my wheels turning. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. So that can be light and humorous, or it can be dark and gritty. It just depends on the tone you take. You know, you know, that's the thing too, even with my series I have, that's not, urban fantasy but there's 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 a lot of humor or attempts at it at least uh, tried and mixed in there with the seriousness of, of what's going on and uh, i don't know this is funny i've never i've always enjoyed this kind of thing like i said that show grim and some of these other examples um maybe it might be something i want to might want to try my hand at I, I do like the idea though as you said that there is a shorthand available to you mm-hmm. and and so you've because like you know you said that i was thinking about uh, 
Stephen King when he when he did Werewolves with Silver Bullet, and he, you know it was. I think I've seen it with that, and there's other movies where people. It seems like a contemporary thing where they introduce something like a vampire or a werewolf, and, and there's always the character scoffing, going, "Werewolf? That's not real. What are you saying? What you know? What are you? What mm-hmm. Lon Chaney coming after me?" And then it's of course real, and I, I, I that's kind of fun. And but I think I think you've got a you're really onto something there about how it's not just a shorthand for the writer for the creator, it's a shorthand for the reader. Yes. So, and then that leaves to me, here I am thinking aloud, it's to me, that leaves you open where you can create this pieces of silver thing, or you can introduce your own take on why things are the way they are. Oh my gosh, that's great. Yes. And it plays with this phenomenon that I have written about in my blog, where people like the same, but different. There's comfort and familiarity and urban fantasy plays with that really well. That is so true. All right. I, I'd love to ask people like yourself who are very tuned in to what's going on in the zeitgeist with creativity and writing. Are there, are there any things out there uh, out in the world that, that you would recommend, any books or movies or anything that you think is, is kind of along these lines that people should check out if they haven't already? Urban fantasy books? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So the one that I'm reading now, I'm just going to pull it. Yeah. Is... Um, Midnight Riot, it's Ben Aronovich. I mm. think I'm saying that right. He has a whole series that's really good. It plays with this, these things. It kind of goes back to the classical detective urban fantasy set in London. That one I've really enjoyed. Um, anything by Patricia Briggs is urban fantasy and fun. I'm writing these down as she's talking. <laughs> So those are the two that I've read the most lately. Um, if you want to go YA, we, there's a lot of urban fantasy in YA. Sure. Yeah, maybe um, one or two. I don't mean to put you on the spot because I know like, I read a ton. I'm like, oh, God, what was that one I read? You know, But if you could think of on the tip of your tongue a couple, it'd be great. Yeah, the one that I was thinking of earlier was Sea Witch by Sarah Henning. Mm. And that one is a take on The Little Mermaid, but it's told from the Sea Witch's perspective and is... Uh, how the sea witch came to be it's also a romance so mm-hmm. if you are interested in urban fantasy there's kind of two tracks there's either more detective thriller style or there's romance urban fantasy so know what you're getting <laughs> make sure you're getting what you want <laughs> right right there's so much out there well i'm going to look into these and uh, and folks don't worry I, I might just include a link or two in the show notes because i'd love to i want to have caitlin's recommendations available to you but of course i'll definitely have a link to when magic calls a collection of modern fairy tales i'll definitely have a link to that um i assume you can get that in all the usual uh, suspects right you can and it's available in paperback ebook and audiobook oh oh you did you read it i did yeah that's where this microphone comes from that we're doing the podcast on. She's got a, if you can't see it, folks. She's got this great rig. It's very professional. She's got a pop screen. I've got like a, I've got all of this too. Yeah, I, I don't, I've got this little, you know, one built in on this mic, but sometimes I trained out mics and everything. Um, oh gosh, well, that's a whole other question, but I don't, I don't, I know we're running low on time here. Um, but I, I do want to ask you one thing. Since having just recorded, I did my podcast, uh, my book on podcasting called The Podcast Option. Yes, well, it's my show. I can put the plug in, listeners, so don't groan. <laughs> anyway, I just did it, but I recorded it myself, did it through ACX. I don't know where, where, if you did that one, but uh, how did you find the process? I would like to do it again because I think I'd be way better at it the second time around. Uh, what I learned is 
one to mark your volume spot on your microphone. So it's in the same yes. place every time. Right. I learned the time of day that works best for me and my voice. And then I learned that it goes faster for me if I edit as I go instead yeah. of going back. So, oh, yeah. Oh. But it's long, it's a steep learning curve, I would say. But I did enjoy it. Yeah. Did you? Did you kind of actively perform anything, if you know what I mean? Did you have to do that or want to do that? I didn't so much. I more like hinted at character voices than did full-on voices, if that's what you're meaning. I did take a couple of four-week narrating classes before I decided to do it. Wow. Mainly because where I teach, I can trade with teachers' classes, (laughs) so it's easy (laughs) for me. Um, But I also wanted to make sure I was up for it before I really committed how many, how, how long did you do? I mean, like I, I found myself after about an hour, I, I had to stop per day. Yes, I definitely did not go more than an hour. For me, I could do one of my longer short stories or two of the shorter ones. And then I was, I was done. Yeah. Cause in fact, okay. All right. I'll admit it. I was pushing it on the last, uh, I wanted to get it down. Like this was a short book, by the way, this is just like a 10,000 word little book, but since I podcast and I record, like today I'm on episode or uh, interview three of a three day, a three interview day. And I did three yesterday, but I can already hear this little right here in my voice catching <clears throat> right mm-hmm. there. And that's where I got to, but I had like two chapters left and I, I all right, listeners, you have to buy the book to hear it. But on the last chapter or so, you'll hear this get a little raspy here. And I, I kicked myself for doing that, but I also just kind of got to that point where it's like, Nobody's really listening to the podcast option for, you know, deep, rich tones. It's it's a business book, basically. But that's a completely different thing than than having to do that. I, I had a uh, guy read my first novel, and he, he did. He's fine. He did fine. But he was a little more, he would probably have been, eh, if he's listening, hey, buddy, you did great. I'm not criticizing. He's probably better at nonfiction. Um, mm. It's, I think then you get people, if you're not the author in particular, you, it's good to find somebody who can really grab hold of the characters and kind of make people see that a little bit. I think um, if I were to do, do mine, I think I would do like you did. I think I would definitely um, give, give the reader cues and hints about, you know, what I mean about characterization. But um, even though I've got an acting background, I just don't know. That sounds like it would take a very long time to do. It would, and I wasn't confident that I could create a voice and maintain it throughout Mm. the whole story or a whole book, which is why I chose to hint. And I actually, on the proof copy of my paperback book that I ordered, that's what I used to read. And I wrote notes to myself about how the voices needed to sound. My first story takes place in uh, China and well, it's kind of Chinese American. And so I wrote out how to pronounce things in that book. And yeah, so it's right there when I'm reading. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I think that scared me. I've got a lot going on in, uh, down in the Caribbean in my second book. And there's the, there, I, I did write in the patois of uh, Bahamian, there's some Bahamian criminals, you know. And, and now I'm sitting there, I wrote that like nine years ago. And I have to go back and, and I have to really, you know, actually work. So I, I may not do that. <laughs> Oh, man. Caitlin, I know I've jumped all over the place, but you're one of those people I get on the show and you have so much going on. I just love asking you about it. I'd like to ask you one last question, if that's okay. If you got a minute. Sure. Okay. All right. So you're part of a critique group. Mm -hmm. What are you going to tell my listeners? And there are quite a few of them out there who are working on their first book and they're nervous as hell about a critique group. What do you tell them to tell them, hey, it's okay? 
I tell them that they are other writers and everybody is there because they want to get better. So you want to look for a group that genuinely wants to help lift everybody up. Yeah. Also, not every group is going to be right for you. And it's okay to try one and be like, nope, I did that. You know, if you're brand new, look for other writers who are fairly new to critiquing as well. You can learn how to do it together. You'll feel a little bit more comfortable asking questions. Yeah. And also it's really going to help you in your writing. You will pick up on things in other people's writing before you will pick up on it in your own. That's a, that's a great point. And, I, you know, I haven't done nearly as many. I've kind of got to the point where I don't work with groups, but I do have betas, beta readers for all my stuff now. And uh, just just for listeners, just, just a little uh, corollary to what Caitlin's saying, um, I kind of had the same couple or three betas for years, and I, I think I was kind of wearing them out. And they, mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't complaining, but I thought, so I, I did something I've never done before, Caitlin. And I, so I got on my actual personal Facebook page, okay? Not on my writer's Facebook page, my writing book. Because I, I put a notice up two, three months ago saying, anybody interested in being a, a beta reader, I'll send you an ARC and here's what we'll do. And all that. Nothing. So I thought, well, shoot, I need some. And so I put it on my personal one. I now have to send out. And I didn't want to tell anybody, no, I thought one or two people. I've got like 13 people wanting to beta this thing. And I don't want to tell any of them no. I, and that's going to be a lot of my part to have to sift through. But I guess be careful what you wish for and be careful how you go about asking for betas is the only lesson I can give you. Yes, I had something similar. I put a call for beta readers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I got only people from Instagram, but I had like eight all at once. And I was thinking, okay, that's a little bit more, but it worked out. I also know that if you haven't worked with your betas before, there's a good chance that about 50, 25% won't, won't get back to you. Yeah. They won't finish it. Mine did, (laughs) but (laughs) now, now I'm going to do this, Caitlin, tell me if, if, can I get free advice out of you? I mean, I'm taking you to lunch and talking about writing. Here we go. You're (laughs) like, dude, I just want to eat my salad in peace. All right, here we go. If I'm going to include a questionnaire, but not a long questionnaire, because again, you don't want to wear people out. You're already asking them to give up hours of their life to read your book and think mm-hmm. about it. But I mean, I'm just going to give them like a one pager with like four, three or four questions on it that are just like, basically, you know, did it make, I'm not, I'm not asking them by the way, to correct my grammar or see that. I think right. a lot of people run to that because that's what they know. Mm-hmm. Well, this grammar sure was bad. And, it, like, and I'm going to tell them straight up. I don't need you to do that. I have a, I have a line editor who's going to help me with that. If there's a problem with that, I've got it. All right. I need to tell me, did it entertain you? What parts were most interesting to you? What characters spoke to you? You know, Are there, are there questions you ask that, that, that maybe I haven't thought about that writers should think about asking their beta readers? Well, mine was a little different because it was a collection of short stories. Uh, but I do think it's always good to ask your beta readers easy questions that make them feel good as well as the ones that you really want to know. So who's your favorite character? People love saying that, right? I want to know. Yeah. I want to know as an author, they like talking about their favorites. So let's ask them that. I also asked them, who did they not like? Who's their least favorite character? And sometimes like them. And sometimes I'm like, well, they're the villain. Good. You're not supposed to like them. Do you ever ask them, uh, what about plot or anything like that? Do you say, did it make sense or did do you? I did for a couple of the stories. And then I did a different form 
on a couple of them. One is circular and it's telling Hansel and Gretel's story over and over, but changing a detail each time until it becomes something completely different. And so for that one, I'm like, was it too much repetition? Did it make sense? Were you able to follow what was happening? And then some of the other ones, I was my Selkie story, which is people who are seals who take off their seal skin and are human. I wanted to make sure that they knew soon enough that that's what that character was. Like, when did you first know? Because they need to know soon enough for the plot to make sense. Okay. There's so much here. And I guess the the other thing is, listeners, if you um, are asked to be or or volunteer to be a a beta reader, please, please read it. And then please fill out the form on time. I'm going to be on a tight, tight time because... My developmental will be back to me in a week or two, and then I'll make those changes. Then I'm sending it to a line editor just to make sure everything's, you know, because there's always something, right? And yep. uh, then I'm going to go send it off and have all the arcs made and then mail those to everybody. So, and I'm trying to get it all out by Halloween. So it's getting, I'm starting to get nervous, August. Yeah, I can do it, but I get nervous. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I think I gave my beta readers three weeks which is really short, but my book is not, you know, it's 60,000 words. It's not a hundred thousand words, like a regular fantasy novel. Yeah. So, but they did it. They did it. Well, that's, that says a lot about you. Well, I think this interview says a lot about you, Caitlin Burby. I, I, you have just, you're doing so much. So if people want to get a hold of you, if they need help or they uh, want to hire you to, or at least talk to you about hiring you, I know you don't accept every client you get. How do they get a hold of you? There's a few ways. Uh, my website, ignitedinkwriting.com, has a contact form. So does my author website, which is Caitlin Burvey, my name. I also am on most social media. Uh, my name, Caitlin Burvey, Ignited Ink Writing, any of those will point you to me. So I'm on Instagram. I have Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, wow. uh, and then YouTube as an editor. So. Yeah. Well, we're going to put those links in the show notes because that's just how we roll here at Mysterious Goings On. So don't you all worry. And Burvey is spelled B-E-R-V-E, correct? Am I right? Yes. About that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that's not a not a not a normal not a normal name, not a usual name. It's not Smith or something. But it'll right. all be in the show notes. All will be revealed in uh, the show notes at mgopod.com. That's mgo as in Mysterious Goings On Pod. Mgopod.com. Caitlin, I've enjoyed meeting you, and, and I, I appreciate you letting me slingshot all over the place in this conversation and asking <laughs> you, wow, you have rolled with the punches so well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Have you lost your belief in finding a really good mystery thriller? Well, trust me, you've got to have faith. Pilot's faith. Kirkus Review says of the book that Greenwood pulls many tricks from his writer's satchel, has a quirkiness and energy, and snappy, snarky dialogue that keeps things moving briskly. A well-handled mystery with the appropriate twist at the end. Midwest Book Review says newcomers to Pilot will find no barriers to quick immersion in his personality and situation, while prior series readers immediately become involved in another conundrum which tests his skills and the ways in which others view him in his world. Surviving a recent attempt on his life, a weary John Pilot returns to Cross Township, where a bizarre string of shootings has paralyzed the tiny college burg. Pilot joins forces with the law to find out why people are being terrorized in his name and stop it. Unfortunately, when he turns to his family for support, he finds only hardened hearts. People are dying, 
accusing fingers are being pointed his way and he has nowhere left to turn. Everything John Pilate believes in, family, sanity, and even himself are shaken to the core in Pilate's faith. Online Book Club says, it's a gripping and fun story that kept me hooked. Greenwood's writing style is dynamic and the book reads like a movie script. You can get John Pilate series number eight, Pilot's Faith, exclusively in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com. And remember, in the end, it all comes down to faith. Pilot's Faith, a Caroline Street Press book by J. Alexander Greenwood. Thanks so much for listening to Mysterious Goings-On. Don't forget we have a complete archive of all of our interviews, monologues, updates, live readings, dead readings. All of that stuff is available at mgopod.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual suspects. Please join us there. Again, don't forget, mgopod.com also has links where to find me on social media and how to get in touch in case you want to be a guest here on the show. Well, I think it's time that I move on for this week, but until next time, keep reading.